0: The QC Pod is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more, visit queenspodcastlab.org. This is the QC Pod, a podcast about the people, ideas, and projects that make up the Queen's College community. I'm Joseph Cohen from Sociology. Today, we're going to rebroadcast an interview from this May from my colleague Anna Bounds of Sociology. Professor Bounds is an expert on the uh, survivalist community here in New York. Those are people who are preparing for the apocalypse in advance. We're going to uh, learn more about uh, survivalism, uh, prepper subculture in general, and here in New York City. And this is a rebroadcast from uh, the Annex Sociology podcast, Professor Anna Bounds Coming up next. I'm here with my colleague, Queen's College sociologist, Anna Bounds. And uh, it's Cinco de Mayo. We've been in quarantine for like a month and we like touching and base. And uh, I wanted to have uh, Anna on the podcast because it's one of those moments when your friend explodes onto the national. <laughs> did you have a Good Morning America?
1: Yeah, uh, you know it. It we we have taped. It hasn't been shown yet. I just I've been in the New York Times. I've been in the Chicago Tribune, yeah. NPR Sweden. I've been in German newspapers. I have been <laughs> yeah, and I just did a, a another interesting podcast that basically deals with inequality in the nation called Unfair oh, Nation, which is out of D.C., which is pretty pretty nice. pretty awesome. So, yeah, so I'm out there doing my thing.
0: Is it more scholarly or political or what's its thing?
1: Definitely more political. It's okay. uh, very, you know, it's it's uh, hard hitting. Right. I would highly recommend checking it out.
0: So let me explain the circumstances of Anna's big breakout. You know, it's uh, always uh, you never know when your moment's going to come. And Anna has had the very good fortune of releasing a book on survivalism and doomsday preppers in New York City it's coming out in June or July
1: um it's it's going to be out in July yeah, I just uh, did the um uh, the galleys. Yeah, so it's we're we're gonna do it. We're gonna it's in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> knock on
1: wood. Knock on wood. I just did. Absolutely. Look, you know, I wanted my book to be timely, but I don't know if I wanted like this timely. Yeah, a little but, too but yeah, but yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. Well, wait. It.
0: Let Let's explain. Okay, so the book is called "Bracing for the Apocalypse: An Ethnographic Study of New York's Prepper Subculture." And it's with Rutledge. And yeah, so I guess like now that we're all... Sheltered in place, wondering how to get out of New York City and, and all that. Yeah,
1: I know that. that's. Yeah, I'm your girl. Oh my god, <laughs> I'm yeah. your girl. Yeah, so yeah, it's <laughs> it's been pretty interesting because you know, like I said, I've been in the press a lot. I've done a lot of yeah. you know, interviews, and people, you know, we have the you know the formal discussion, and then uh, after the discussion, you know, they want usually want to hang back for a few minutes and talk about things that they're doing and try to get mm. some some prepping suggestions. So it's yeah. been interesting. Yeah, and people that I. Have <laughs> haven't talked to in years have reached out to me yeah. um just to try to get some help. So it's definitely, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been interesting.
0: I remember the, first of all, it's, it's always a wonderful feeling. You only get it a few times. I think in your career, where you're like bell of the ball. I remember when I had uh, a, a moment like that in 2012 and I uh, walked into Sam Heilman. I was like, Sam, I remember the Washington post and Sam, Sa- Samuel Heilman, just so you know, as a colleague, who is pretty much in the major media several times a year. He's a distinguished professor, a very accomplished person, will do far more than I will ever accomplish a But He says to me, nothing's going to change. You think something's going to change, but nothing's going to change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, wow, what a buzzkill. But you know what? He was pretty much right. Like a national media outbreak is about a week's worth of Facebook Thumbs up, I'd say. Yeah, (laughs) some
1: some Instagram likes. And for me, this is um, terrific timing for for my book. My book's, you know, right on. And I think that it gives people some insight. And I think if someone were to ask me to describe, you know, my book is scholarly, but I also think during a moment like this, it's kind of a good friend because you can see that somebody like you has figured out how to do this prepping thing and has tried to understand how and why New Yorkers prep. So that's great, you know, in terms of the scholarly trying to get the the, the product out there. But for me personally, being female with no access to a makeup artist, to a hairstylist, to a colorist, all that stuff, not great times, not great times. Okay, because these virtual interviews are merciless. Okay, they are in terms of like getting the lighting right and doing all these things.
0: Because you have to do all this from home because of social distancing.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just for context for anybody listening to this later. So we're in the thick of social the covid-19 social distancing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Just to give us some context of like today, Mm, um, I guess today's check in. It's Mm. day 56 for me yeah I started um uh sheltering in place first week of March, so it's day fifty six mm-hmm. and to give again the audience a context in the u s we've got about one point two million cases. Mm-hmm. seventy thousand of those people have passed yep. in new york state um we have twenty seven percent of those cases mm-hmm. And, uh, we've lost about 25, over 25,000 people. So we're at 35% of the deaths in the state and with the city, which I think is, is tragic is, um, That in terms of the number of cases, we're hovering around 15 percent of all U.S. cases, which is about one hundred and eighty two thousand. And when it comes to uh, the percentages of deaths, our city alone, our city alone, we account for twenty six percent of the deaths in the United States, which Uh, is eighteen thousand seven hundred
0: nineteen, you know. I, I wonder if it's going to be the worst here or if it's going to be this bad everywhere else. It, it was a terrible experience, especially. Were you hearing from students, like first hand accounts? Of-
1: yeah, and I'm not. you and know, I say this with all due due, due respect to you, I can't yeah. say it was a terrible experience. It is a terrible experience yeah. because I think one of the things that's things that is really making me angry with the media. Their cycles, you know, used to you know need to move on to the next step. Yes, lots of people are talking about you know, re- re- reopening, but. but. But just two days ago, we had the highest number of deaths in the entire country. Mm -hmm, So the whole mm -hmm. point is we're not out of it yet. We all want to, it's spring. We all want to make this past tense. But one of the messages that I want to communicate tonight is we're still in the thick of it. You can't stop doing all the things that we're doing because if we do that, we're going to die. Take a look at Texas. (laughs) Texas got, and I'm from Texas, you know, I was born in Texas, you know, got a little, decided to be a little bit of a rebel and got really way out there and they got hammered. Right. Yeah. And now they're moving back. So, um, yeah. So it's it's day 56. I'm like, just like everybody else. And, you know, you and I've talked about this. You know, it's a roller coaster. Some days you're like, yeah, I'm down. I'm, you you know, doing my work. And then other times you're like, oh, wow, it's sideways today.
0: Yeah, man. It's been the, the, the things that I've seen or most more that I've heard from my students, because we're all sort of sealed off in our own little bubbles. But, uh, you know, we, we teach in the same department and we serve a lot of people who are in households where people are working tough jobs in healthcare. And I heard stuff like uh, the hospitals just stopped taking people from the uh, homes, from the elderly homes. Yeah. I've heard of, stuff like yeah, that. All
1: sorts of. Yeah. I have a yeah. I have a student who um, serves in um, the National Guard who now has mortuary duty and he has mustered a tremendous amount of, of courage in a, a horrifying situation. You know, you're probably the same. I've had students who have lost people. Mm-hmm. Um, I have students who've become sick. Um, I've heard from, you know, in terms of social networks, I've had people who live in um, central Queens, which is, you know, the Uh epicenter of the epicenter here, who have reached out for, for help. We're all doing what we can. Really finding out um, what it means to be a, a New Yorker and, and rallying together. One of the themes of, of my book is the, uh, the changing notion of citizenship in the country. How we're moving from a lack of faith, a, a loss of faith in government, particularly at the federal level, and we're turning towards the local and seeing how mm-hmm. we can, you know, help one another. And the pandemic has certainly, certainly confirmed that. I mean.
0: Up here in New York—that's for sure. Holy yeah. moly! It's been yeah. a very negative experience with the federal government. But like, let's 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 give the audience a little bit of context so they know where sure. you're coming from on the book. Let's start off. Tell me, how did this project? How'd you get into to? Urban survivalism. How do you, how do you get yeah. into that?
1: <laughs> I don't mean. To.
0: <laughs> I know.
1: I got to tell you. Well, my my. You know, my, my family thinks this is just. You know, now they've accepted it. But for you, know, the last couple of years, they thought this was pretty hilarious because I'm not the candidate for this. I'm not. I'm not. Right. But I think that's the point of how white prepping has become popular in the city. And when I say popular, you know, there's certainly a stigma associated with it. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, for but sure. for me, I became interested in prepping because of my own experience with disaster in the city, you know, Mm -hmm. beginning with September 11th, always being at the short end of the stick is the way that I explained it. You know, the person like with the blackout and to compare the blackout and Hurricane Sandy, um, first flashlight, but no batteries and then batteries, but no flashlight. Right. Mm-hmm. Always being that person who didn't quite have their stuff together, just like everybody else. I live in Manhattan. I live right down the street from Washington Square. This is the land of immediate gratification.
0: Yeah. OK. It's also in New York, you live outside of your house like yes. you, you need something. You're like, I'll just go to a bodega and get it. It's really New right. York is a very communal city compared to other places. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's been really, you know, and it's been really, really hard. And, you know, because we're used to public spaces, we're used to our, you know, our favorite bodega, we're used to getting what we want when we want it, and specifically what we want. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's difficult, but we're also used to connecting with people. One of the things about city dwellers is that we have this great sense of urban citizenship. We're familiar with the stranger, right? We tolerate one another. We're used to being in public spaces. And so to have no sense of the public realm, this is a, a real loss for us because, you yeah. know, as Jane Jacobs has said, the most important thing about the city and the success of the city is the social fabric, you know, the public yeah. realm. And we don't we don't have that right now. Yeah. You know, so it's 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 crazy. It's crazy.
0: Parenthetically, you know, my impression I when I first came to New York, I was like, wow, people are very abrasive. But the more you get to know them, you realize they're just loud and forthright, but actually extremely friendly. New York's a very, very friendly city, I find at least.
1: Well, yeah, I take, you know, your point is well taken. You know, I grew up in the South where everyone seems very friendly. And with all due respect, you know, to Southerners, we know that's not the case. We know that people are polite. They may seem to some, you know, more genteel. But you know what? It's not true because you never really know quite where you stand. In Mm. New York, the refreshing thing is I think that people are direct and (laughs) you know where you stand.
0: It's a constant feedback, yeah.
1: (laughs) Which to me, I think is charming. Mm. I don't have to look for the knife in my back. You're going to let me know how you feel and what's going to happen right up, you know. (laughs) And that's, unfortunately, I wasn't familiar with that experience until I got here. And to tell you the truth, you know, I love it. New York is the first place that's felt like home. But I was a little bit weird anyway because when I was much younger, I had this – was really interested in the city back when I was a kid. I would uh, subscribe to the New Yorker and the New York Times. Well, what the the New Yorker, and you know, I didn't understand half the stuff, but you know, I tried my best. You because know, I just kept thinking, hey, you know what? This is where thinkers are. I'm a nerd. These are yeah. my peeps. And when I got here, yeah, these are my peeps. Yeah. So it's it's awesome. It's
0: funny. Well, you know what I. When I was uh, a little boy, I actually uh, dreamed of moving to New York in northern Ontario. And actually, me being here represents the achievement of a uh, lifetime goal. Oh. Yeah. And I'm very grateful. Yeah. I'm very very grateful to be in this job in part because, yeah, it's really something I got.
1: We'll, get, well, congratulations. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> One of the things that people, um, that, that has come up in just my conversations with people is about the fact of, well, why haven't you left? If you, you know, have family in other areas, you know, why have you stayed? And I think that for for me, I'll say other New Yorkers that I've talked with who stayed like in my apartment building and have uh, made the argument, um, well, you know what? I, I, I'm a New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker till the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, you know, I don't think most people say that about where they live. Mm-hmm. So that just speaks to kind of the depth of, you know, the passion that people have for not just for their their homes, but for the city. Mm-hmm. And then also for me, it was um, some ways, uh, you know, in terms of prepping, kind of a, a decision for survival. I mean, regardless of how overwhelmed we were at the state level with Governor Cuomo, in at the city level, we were much better organized to handle the pandemic. Um, you know, taking it more seriously and trying to do what was needed for its citizens. And when I took a look at other other areas that were possible, I just didn't have that sense of. I just my heart was here, but logically, I didn't have that uh, sense of safety.
0: Yeah. So, so let's get into the book. Let's talk sure. about how'd you get, how'd you get started on the book? Like where, what was, the, what was the sort of the, who'd you meet? Give us the backstory, the origin yeah. story of this book. Well,
1: I, uh, the, the, the book is um, an ethnography. Um, so I spent um, uh, two years working with a prepping group called the New, uh, New York City Preppers Network, training with them, um, trying to figure out what kind, you know, what, what prepping was about, how to prep, what kind of people prep, why are they prepping, all those sorts of things. But that was, you know, one aspect of it. Um, um i also interviewed independent preppers meaning regular folks who who train alone who don't train as part of a group mm-hmm. um and then i also spent um some time talking with independent preppers of an entirely different ilk i think is um a, a entirely different type of prepper H&Ws, high net worth preppers, okay. preppers, yeah, who are in the multi-million, you know, who, who start in the multi-million range, you know, okay. and, you know and, and and usually north of that, and uh, trying to figure out what they do, because how high net worth preppers prepare for disaster, and the kind of things that they do, and the kind of, and, and you know, their approaches are v- very different from, uh, I'll say, preppers of ordinary income, the rest of us, I guess, would be the way to describe
0: so what type of person gets into prepping?
1: Well, an important finding from my book is that New York preppers are very different from the stereotype that we have of, yeah. you know, the lone white wolf, though lone white hero who's going to help save the nation or need to help save his family based on his bushcraft skills. Okay. Right. That we, in right. American popular culture, we have this idea that there's the guy with the scraggly beard who's stockpiling things in his basement, you know, or in the bunker that he's built by himself. Right. Uh-huh. And, you know, he's uh, stockpiling his pr- provisions and his ammo because he thinks I've got to do this because the government's coming for me. To, yeah, that's my but, conception. Right, right. Yeah. it is not. It, is, it, it right. is not. In terms of taking a look at New York preppers, a lot of um, individuals, are. a, a lot of uh, preppers are, are people of color. And they prep because they believe the government isn't coming for them in the event yeah. of a disaster, which is a completely different type of logic. You know, <laughs> and, yeah, and and I would argue that that uh, in some ways is much more reality-based, based on, you know, the responses that at least people have perceived in terms of watching television, you know, or seeing Hurricane Katrina a couple of years yeah, ago, Katrina was was several thinking, years ago. It was kind of the first one where this was, was really on the map. And then taking a look at what happened with Puerto Rico, right? Taking mm-hmm. a look at during Hurricane Sandy, the perception that their their own neighborhoods were under. Served. You know, okay. that's one way to look at it. And another another way is to also keep in mind that preppers aren't just men. There are many preppers who are women, you know, who have leadership roles, who are really kind of setting the pace in prepping, which I think right. deserves some acknowledgement.
0: So so these aren't Turner Diary types, then is what you're saying.
1: No. No. You know, the, the argument, here's the thing about New York preppers, um, I've discovered that they do come from all walks of life, all levels mm-hmm. of income. Um, these are individuals who have started to prep based on direct experience. New mm-hmm. York preppers prepare for disaster based mm-hmm. on direct experience. Being in a situation and not knowing how to deal with it, right? Not knowing how to best protect their families. Whereas um, when you take a look at kind of this myth of prepping, it's something, you know, that people do based on some dystopian fantasy that they have. For New York, this is the real world. I mean, preppers are are most concerned about five broad categories. Natural disasters, terrorist Mm -hmm. attacks, technological collapse the government, um, our economic collapse. And then the last one is pandemics. Take a look at New York's recent history. Our city has had direct experience with just, you know, with about all of those, you know, in yeah. terms of economic collapse, the what, whatever we're calling it, the Great Recession. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had the East Coast blackout. We've had mm-hmm. terrorist attacks. And it's, it's also important to note that people not forget that there have been um, attempts, um, like, for example, the bomb that didn't go off in Times Square. Right. right the challenges that the person had at the subway um that that bomb didn't go off and then we had the person who tried to carry a bomb onto the subway and ended up injuring himself right mm-hmm. that was near times square as well so i just don't want us to think and we also you know most recently um in terms of of terrorist attacks which were successful um the west side highway mm-hmm. Right. So we've had a lot, you know, a lot of things happen that have made people think for a moment, OK, wait a minute, th- this this is real. What c- what can I do to protect my family? And, and in terms of prepping, there are two things you do. You shelter in place like, like you know, people are doing right now and you figure out how to best to do that. Are you figure out how to leave the city, which they refer to as bugging out?
0: Let's get to that. But I just want to. So on on the types of people who are involved in this, what I am understanding you to say is that it's actually a very diverse group. It is not some type of fantasy driven cult, but rather it's surprising, not surprisingly, but surprisingly, if you had taken the stereotype to heart, very rational people who are making calculations based on their experience uh, that of of being vulnerable in New York.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. So, like, uh, give us an example of, like, some really formative experiences that you found a lot of subjects were like, oh, yeah, after that happened, I realized I was on my own. What are the big ones?
1: Well, it was, um, you know, we have so September 11th, people being at work sure. downtown, the leader of the group, Jason Charles, is first responder, his experience. So for, for many people, that was, of course, a biggie, you know, and mm-hmm. then which was reinforced through other, you know, we'll say a, attempts at other smaller attacks, someone working not in downtown, but someone working in Times Square, you know, an office building in Times Square when they discovered that bomb, right? Mm-hmm. For example, an interview that I had with a maker of safe rooms in New York, in other words, someone who deals exclusively with, you know, H&Ws after these terrorist attacks, particularly with the Times Square one, his request for um, having safe rooms uh, be built in apartments increased dramatically. Mm-hmm. You know, right now he argues when it ta- when you take a look at um, multi-million, you know, again, high net worth preppers, you know, he's constructing it in Manhattan um, alone about 50 safe rooms a year hmm. that's significant wow. yeah that's significant and when we and i'm not talking about a panic room
0: these are like chemical the rooms that you could seal off yeah from like it, chemical it, type
1: of absolutely you know and these are these are our, our, our custom built safe rooms they're dual purpose rooms where you could be in someone's living room and everything looks beautiful and you have absolutely no understanding that if need be it will function as a safe room
0: i've seen these in israel yeah they're very common in israel
1: right right so, you know, we have an increase in that. And you know, he's now building in, in in Brooklyn as well.
0: I have a question. Uh, does the fact that New York is an island loom large in their mindset? Oh, like, yeah, I remember,
1: absolutely. I remember absolutely.
0: 9-11 and stuff like that. Yeah. Was, you know, you couldn't get off the island. The blackout, you were stuck on the island. Right, You're right. like,
1: oh, holy moly. Yeah, well, yeah. the blackout was a, was a really big one for people too, right? Yeah, I remember that you know, tra- And not just and then Hurricane Sandy. When I interviewed people, you know, there were I would say that um, it was one of two cases. There was a definitive moment, let's say something very traumatic happened in September 11th that made them um, feel that they needed to prep. Or there was a gradual awakening where basically stuff kept happening in the city. And they thought, mm-hmm. you know what, I have to change my behavior. I have to figure out how to better protect my family. So I would argue that, that both are the case. And the blackout was definitely a big one. Um, Hurricane Sandy. There's a, um, an interesting story in the book where a gang member talks about how they orchestrated getting supplies to and from their neighborhood during Hurricane Sandy. And basically it was the, the gangs calling a, a, a truce in his area and working together to figure out how they could ship things in and out to help people. So when we think you know in New York about the 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 idea of community it's it comes in all forms sure. yeah certainly
0: That's interesting. It's like a sort of a self-organized emergency services. Like,
1: yeah, well, I think with the changing notion of citizenship, one of the things that we're seeing is, you know, an increase in self-reliance, the idea that that, you know, people have witnessed the federal government being overwhelmed, uh, not having a strategic plan, there being confusion, a lack of transparency, whatever you'd want to say. So they have fear that in the event there's a, you know, a a disaster that the government isn't going to, you know that they can't depend on the government. Mm. An outstanding prepper, you know, someone who certainly taught me a lot about prepping and a lot about life as well. His name is uh, Marlon and he made the argument, look, if something happens, we have millions of people here. The cavalry isn't coming for us and we, and we need to figure that out. And you know what? Yeah. He, he's right. He was right. And so, you know, they, it, these are different things that they've talked about. The lack of coordination, the lack of resources, you know, mm-hmm. and also the lack of regard at the federal level.
0: Yeah. You know that in some ways like it's this has uh revealed how naive my expectations are of what the government would do in this situation and how those guys were ultimately right like you know even now right now so I, a lot of th- this episode will probably come out in June and a lot will have happened but mm-hmm. uh where when we're talking right now at the start of May the disease is still raging and they're working to open up states because people are giving up on the quarantine. And it's really just they're just they're just going to throw people out there, I guess. huh? The government didn't have a plan to keep everybody safe. You are basically responsible for insulating yourself from this disease. It looks like it's going to be. I don't know how it's going to play out, but they were right in a way. Yeah, they were. You know, I was naive.
1: Yeah. And that was the sad thing. Um, I remember in, you know, er, early January, you know, when it looked like, yeah, this is going to hit even before first case appeared, you know, yeah. I, I, I realized that my prepping experience has really paid off because mm-hmm. in our bug out bags, we already had N95 masks. Yeah. We had everything, you know, that we needed. We were, we were okay. And the interesting thing is people made the argument, oh, preppers, wow, you know, they're probably, hey, running around. I told you so. I told you so. And it was interesting because the perception, you know, I, you know, I was, I spent with, with many preppers and group members, and their response has been, Well, you know what? This is, they've kind of taken it sort of in stride. This is something that we've trained for. This is something that we've thought about. Okay, we're ready. I'm ready with what I need to do. You know, I, I'm prepared. So let me figure out how I can help my neighbor. Let me figure out how I can educate people about what they need to do, which I think is another interesting finding, because one of the things that I learned in the book that I wasn't really expecting, I thought that it would kind of be this group of isolationists, right? Yeah,
0: I, I would have expected that. Yeah,
1: no, really, they're, they're actually very, very good, network, good networkers, and they're community-oriented. So that, that whole myth, like I said, of of this lone figure, it really doesn't exist within New York. And I think a lot of that has to do with our close proximity to one another. And, you know, the idea that if people train and learn to, from one another, they're already understanding the benefit of learning from one another and having a large resource network. Like, for yeah. example, now many of the preppers uh, have formed resource networks. In other words, indicating in goods that they have available, exchanging things and trying to see how they can help each other and people within their community, not just within, you know, a a, a prepper network.
0: How much of this is that they are sort of enthusiasts of a body of knowledge, you know, not completely unlike, you know, sociologists who enjoy our esoteric 19th century you know it's just (laughs) it's a body of knowledge that we're into
1: yeah and
0: there there is an entire sort of like canon there's a whole practice related to survivalism it's like a a school or discipline in and of itself how many of these people are just sort of enthusiasts of sort of that body of knowledge is that a thing or
1: I think that um, that's a little bit difficult to answer. Yeah, I think probably. because you know, here, here's the point that I need to make. It's not that it's difficult to answer. What needs to be put out there is that there are many types of preppers and many levels of prepping. So no. you do have definitely, you know, hardcore people, and then you have people who are, are interested in just prepping for specific events, or uh, mm-hmm. you know, not going all in and having this be a lifestyle. Right. You have people in in this prepping group who attend all events, who attend all, you know, the NYC Preppers Network provides a variety of of activities, everything from from lectures to beginning excursions to um, outdoor uh, um, excursions. In other words, overnight camping trips for beginning preppers to excursions for advanced preppers where Hmm. you will live for three days on what you brought with you your gear. There's no water source. There's no food source. There's no shelter. You don't bring a tent. You don't bring anything like that at all. You're expected to either have it in your, in your very small bag, you know, the tools that you need to make whatever you need to make, right? In, yeah you know to, to survive, which I think is fascinating, particularly for New Yorkers because New Yorkers we're, we're, we're not majority of us aren't outdoor people. We don't have some you know some of the the preppers that I've interviewed who are now um, hikers who are very committed to prepping as a lifestyle. Um, are folks who didn't have really any outdoor experience at all when they started prepping. One of the messages that I think gets lost is not just that preppers come from a variety of, of backgrounds, but that preppers just aren't interested in trying to figure out how to use survival gear, right? That's, on, that's mm. only, you know, in bushcraft skills. You know, that's only part of it. You know, preppers are interested in homesteading and they're interested in sustainability, So, you know, there's a lot of really interesting back to nature things going on.
0: Let's let's delve into that, flesh that out a little. So, first of all, in terms of like for those of us who know nothing about prepping, can you start us off with a little prepping 101? Like, what do we have to do to make sure once this COVID thing is passed that we're ready for the next big emergency?
1: I can say this in one sentence when you're thinking about what you need to do and what you Mm -hmm. need to do for your family. Mm-hmm. just don't stock up take stock what does that mean think about your family's experience what was it like during covid what what you know what things did you discover that you needed that you didn't have what would you like to have in the event and unfortunately there's going to be another wave at the start yeah. of it, what do you think that you need to keep on hand? Of course, things like mask and gloves and hand sanitizer. Do you have mm-hmm. to be a hoarder? No. But is it useful to have some of those items on hand? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When, when it comes to buying, uh, storing additional food in your home trying to figure out what it is that your family really likes in terms of food and in terms of entertainment. In other words, taking stock of this situation and taking stock of, you know, what matters to your family, because in some ways prepping is very different. There are things that I carry in my bag that other people wouldn't, you know, necessarily care about and wouldn't think that it was something that wouldn't be important. But, you know, but when, but when thinking of, you know, sheltering in place, One of the recommendations that I have is that people think carefully about how they really live their lives and what's comfortable to them instead of running to a big box store, ordering a bunch of things on Amazon or going to Costco and buying some vat of blue goo because people say that the shelf life is you know, for a million years and that your family can live on this for the next year. Okay, if it's awful, if you don't like eating it, don't buy it just because it comes in bulk. There's no reason (laughs) anybody should be buying a 40 pound case of hot dogs made of sawdust. That's only going to make a miserable situation more miserable. Again, you know, one of the preppers advice was that you have to, you know, this was Marlene, you have to get comfortable in your discomfort, right? You've got to figure out what works for you. And so that's my advice. We all need to have a, a situation where we figure out, okay, what, what works for us and not just food, rearranging your home to accommodate for virtual learning, for virtual work, setting up proper workflows within the apartment right? Hmm. Well, and other things, and you know, and then they're even amusing things. Like what is that the, the, the rate of alcohol consumption in this country has gone up 50%. Okay. And <laughs> I'm one of those people. Okay? <laughs> so if you need to have your favorite tequila on hand, or your favorite, whatever, I guess I put in my own plug for tequila. But you know, hmm. be sure you have it. What do you know, a chocolate, your favorite kind of chocolate? I'm not saying be extravagant. But I'm not saying don't feel like you have to make things extra miserable by not respecting your own mm. philosophy that you've had when it comes to living your life.
0: So but it sounds to me there's two plans involved there, right? Like there's the sheltering one. And then there's the get off the island one, I suppose. Right. Yep. How does the get off the island one work?
1: It depends on how much money you have for high net okay. worth. You're, you know, you um already have a, like not- a
0: boat at the marina or?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, not just a second home that's already stocked and, you know, with the staff waiting right. for you, right? You're you're leaving by um, helicopter. You're leaving by private plane, you know, and most, you know, and, and possibly, like you said, a boat at the marina. Most don't. The idea is that they've already made, a tra- you know, arrangements for, for travel in, you know, a very um, expedient way, right? And you're arriving at your uh, second home in in some exotic destination. And this sounds like fiction. It's not. It's true, right? <laughs> like there
0: are people yeah, who are like that.
1: No, it's it's it, there are certainly certainly people who are like that. And then for regular preppers, preppers of ordinary means, provided enough advance notice, something like the pandemic, you can leave the city, mm-hmm. drive out of the city. You know, that's yeah. assuming that you have a jump on everyone, right? That you mm-hmm. haven't waited until the last minute. Um, Mm -hmm. So perceiving that you've left, you know, so in other words, you know, leaving the city early um, and going to stay with family or friends are um, with this group having a more modest home, but in places outside of the state, places um, upstate as well some kind of a safe house, some kind of location. For many of the preppers, it's it's a a modest location, you know, a modest second home. I mean, one of the Mm -hmm. things that people tend to forget about is that it's easier for you to buy a home outside of the city upstate, a small one that your family can use on the weekends, than it is to actually buy a place in the city. Yeah. I mean, it's extremely, extremely expensive. So, mm-hmm. um, but there's also the idea that a disaster could strike. You could not have any advance notice where you know, you can't travel outside of the city through normal means. So you walk outside of the city. So you have provisions, particularly for you know, how to walk outside of the city. You have a route set up. You have meetup points so that you can walk out together.
0: Like you just walk, walk to the Bronx, basically?
1: Yeah, or you just walk across the bridge, whatever the case. Yeah, whatever. You know, you can walk through the Bronx, you, um, uh, GW, uh, Yeah, GW, walking across the bridge in uh, prepping groups. Practice walking. When I say practice walking, I mean uh, practicing as families with your survival packs on your back, getting used to walking a long distance and being able to handle your backpack. In other yeah. words, you know, figuring out what you need, what weight you can possibly carry. Right for a long, a long time because you know the, their idea is that there may, may be a moment where you need, just need to leave, which I think it leads me to another interesting thing. A lot of preppers just don't have one bag. You have a bag that you keep at home, which is usually your main bag. You have a bag at work. You have a bag in your car wherever you spend the most time. You usually tend to have a bag that you keep there. Some people also have even have EDCs, which are um, what they call everyday carries. So in other words, in the event and something happens, you will have things that, that you, you will need. In other words, perhaps an extra pair of glasses, prescriptions, maybe a couple of protein bars. I'm talking about very small packs. And it- Funny because when people describe what they have in an everyday carry, it reminds me of my grandma's bag, her big purse, oh. right? That kind of thing. You know, we're not too far from that with everyday carries. But yeah, so it, you know, again, there are different types of preppers and different levels of prepping. Some people even get even have very small bikes. You know, those those uh, fold out the
0: folding bikes, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, at their workplace and things like that so again it depends on how much you'd like to invest and also to preppers a lot of these individuals are do-it-yourselfers people who like to tinker people who like to build things people who um, like for example one of the preppers has um, a degree from FIT and he's amazing he's a renaissance man and he thought to himself well okay here's what we need during the blackout we need a light source you know we need some supplies so we have all those but you know what let me take on the idea of trying to figure out how to build a generator can I do that on my own? Mm. Yes, he can. Those yeah. are, you know, these kinds of people, right?
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. And their um, idea too is that, you know, you're not going to be necessarily prepping alone. You're going to be prepping within a group, just kind of like we're sheltering in place. And, you know, having people with diverse skills is important.
0: Hmm. So uh, what, have you, what have you learned about survivalism uh, since the, the outbreak, the pandemic?
1: What I have learned is, or what has been reinforced is what I learned in my book. The fact that, you know, survival is, you can't survive alone, right? The idea that that community, is, in particular local community, is the key to survival. Hmm. Working together, learning from one another, sharing That's what's going to get us through because I would make the argument, you know, when we take a look again, how miserable the lack of management has been at the national level. The local really is what's gotten us through. This not waiting for the president to make to give the order for companies to start producing masks and goods for New York companies to to begin doing that for people to to start forming sewing circles to sell masks for hospitals people leaving you know groceries and supplies for the elderly and their apartment buildings you know that kind mm. of thing yeah that's what patriotism is about
0: mm. yeah totally
1: it's not about this this stockpile That's a myth. <laughs>
0: So, what about like just the you know broader society takeaways that you got from the study? like you spent some time with you know the preppers did it change your the way you understood like new york you know in 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 as a whole or how america worked like what did did your perspective on that stage?
1: yeah because it it was interesting because for me. I thought that other people didn't have the same inkling that I have. In other words, they were all just interested in prepping for prepping's sake. They mm. didn't have that inkling like uh, of, wow, some really awful things have happened here. I, I better figure out how how to adapt to this. I mm. thought that was me coming at this in terms of my own interest and my own perspective as a sociologist. Yeah. I wasn't thinking that all of these other people, I mean, that the enrollment or, you know, the the membership for, for the NYC Preppers Network is... Uh, uh, about 500, mm-hmm. which, you know, and you have to understand that there are a lot of people who prep independently who aren't part of a group, right? This is the mm-hmm. only, um, the only formal, you know, the only public group of preppers in the city. But what, what I've learned is that everybody has, it's kind of a, everybody has that same mindset, you know, so I came away understanding that to be a New Yorker, you just don't need street smarts, you need survival smarts. Mm-hmm. That's just a fact, Jack. <laughs>
0: Any any uh, evolution of thoughts on like how the rest of society treats the preppers or like the misconceptions surrounding them? Or
1: well, to me, I think it's a, there's definitely a stigma associated with it. Yeah. Uh, but I argue that there are many more people prepping than we know about. It's just that it has a stigma, and they're not necessarily disclosing it, or they may not, you know, even realize. Oh wow, this is what I'm doing. And and there there isn't an official survey on preppers, right? But when we mm-hmm. take a look at American popular culture, there. There's a lot, a lot of uh, um, anecdotal evidence. You know, when we go to Costco, we see all these survival packages available. People are yeah. buying them, right? There are over a million books on prepping on Amazon. There's people reading them, right? You mm-hmm. know, there are all these markets, right? People are shopping for, you know, not just camping equipment at place, at sporting goods stores like um, REI and, you know, Paragon. Instead, people are shopping for survival goods. Also, when we take a look at American film and when we take a look at television, um, when we take a look at commercials, they're definitely representations of mainstream preppers mm-hmm. in, in and all, in all sorts of uh, that are being used to pr- advertise all sorts of products, everything that you would imagine from like, you know, some, some kind of, let's say some type of prepping gear to selling cars, it's, Mm. it's, it's there. So I would argue it's definitely an undercurrent and, and it was interesting because last year, in 2019, Upper Winfrey has this popular Christmas uh, gift list that she puts out every year. Uh, mm. And it's, you know, she has a and it's a, covered in the magazine and it's covered on the show. And it's all of these terrific, beautiful, amazing products that you can buy for people you love for the holidays. On last year's um, um, list was a luxury uh, bug out bag. Hmm. It's all sold, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, it was quite expensive. It's very mainstream. Yeah, yeah, very mainstream. And it's, you know, the New York Times had a miniature version for people who live in the city. They had that crazy Altoid, um, Altoid box size preppers kit, which is crazy. And then, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and then, you know, all sorts of things. You know, even home home goods stores like Pottery Barn, they now mm-hmm. sell prepping bags. Yeah, they're like $500 a piece. That's crazy. <laughs> My advice is don't don't buy it. Make an, an, an you know this is again for people figuring out if and when they need to prepare, please do not buy one of these unless you you've reviewed it and you're you're really comfortable and you really like the products that in that are in there. I would, you know, encourage you to go to an actual prepping uh, website and put your own bag together or, you know, have them curate it for you. I wouldn't recommend that you spend that tremendous amount of money on the bags that are supplied because when you take these more mainstream bags, because they're not worth the money. Hmm. What did
0: you learn about like, you know, how people deal with trauma? Like there's a lot of, I remember when I was reading your book, I was like, wow, there's a lot of trauma driving this like, uh, or it's, uh, it's there. The theme is there.
1: Yeah, oh, how, how's it,
0: how's it, how's it shaped I
1: think that that in some ways prepping is uh, people trying to get control over um, a challenging situation um, and trying to figure out how they can best survive. In a particular scenario, because they've been in a situation, like I've said, where things have been bad. So I would say that it's definitely associated with trauma. It's also definitely associated with, you know, people really being passionate about things like homesteading and sustainability and thinking, you know, that they want to try to step away, you know, even city dwellers from this life of consumption because. Your allegiance to all these things, you know, at the end of the day, as much as we love them, aren't really going to help us in an emergency situation. Mm. I mean, look at me. I look like a calico cat right now. (laughs) 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 That's what preppers need to do. They need We need to, you know, have some sort of good self-care practices. Massage. Mm. Massage. (laughs) That's what I'm missing right now. What are you missing, Joe? I'm missing a lot of things
0: uh I, I would love to watch baseball and eat chicken wings with some friends that's uh nice yeah oh.
1: dude we got to yeah, do that that's what i'd
0: like to be yeah. doing it'll probably be in twenty 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 two or something i think at yeah. this rate but yeah.
1: uh we'll get there we'll get I'm, well, well
0: get there. i mean i'm i'm out in new jersey have you has has this experience caused you to rethink your Manhattan location are you considering joining us in the suburbs no nope. nope. <laughs> right. you, you,
1: you keep posting those crazy pictures of Costco <laughs> I'm not into oh, yeah, that I could just you know put on my masking gloves and walk to the store mm-hmm. and of course there certainly have been shortages of things
0: yeah here too though
1: Yeah, you know, when this started, I had two weeks supply of things. And, you know, I've since extended beyond that. Like one of the things that I did that apartment dwellers don't usually think of was that I bought a a small freezer.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow.
1: So we're yeah, but it's not really that big. It was pretty small. It fits behind. It makes curtain.
0: all the difference, though. Dude,
1: man, let me tell you something. It, 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 it sure does. It I sure bet. does. But yeah, you know, I think that this whole experience, I've learned a lot about people's creativity, their inventiveness, mm-hmm. their will to to take this on because they don't feel like the government will be rescuing them and they're yeah. right they're right, you know, you can so. argue whether, you know, that should be an expectation or not. And, and certainly in, you know, many cultures, you know, many cultures it is. And I would argue in, in the United States that there was certainly a hope of that, but it's also the, the local too.
0: You know, there's like two visions, I think, of government, often the people harbor. One is of sort of the omnipotent sort of parent who can Swoop in and and solve problems, and then the other one is, envisions government as some fundamentally inept organization that can't really accomplish much. And it's very interesting to me how much more reasonable the survivalist view seems like in light of this. I guess it's a point uh we already made earlier. Yeah,
1: yeah well, I mean, yeah, but it's 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 but it's true. I mean, it's a very lot remarkable, of- yeah. A lot of preparedness is based on you know, the philosophy of self-reliance because you know there's the expectation that the government won't be there. And I would argue the type of preparations that you have taken you know are, are of course dependent on how you perceive the government's role, what your expectations mm. are, which would certainly have changed, but that's only part of it. because one of the things you know, that we're seeing is that, that this pandemic has really exposed really magnified inequalities within cities. You know, yeah. the difference between the rich and you know the poor. You know, the people in the poor sections of you know central Queens for example, proper health insurance is very very expensive for them mm-hmm. in many cases unaffordable. So their first stop isn't their family's doctor when something's wrong. They wait until they become extremely sick and then they go to the emergency room. Which no. wasn't an option during COVID, right? They didn't no. have the ease that someone else has. Like for example, this is this is pretty funny, and I'm I'm sharing sharing this personal information just because I think it's a crazy story. You know, they weren't like me when I when I got sick two weeks ago when the weird things started to happen. What was I able to do? I could send photos to my dermatologist and he could evaluate the photos, you know, and have a session with me and help diagnose me. They don't have access to their to their doctor in that sense. Because they don't even have a regular doctor. Yeah. You know, my deal was that I was eating a um one of the things that that I was thinking about was, oh, you know what? What were some things that I really like to eat that I haven't, you know, consumed in a long time? You know, what are some cool things? So in my little snack stash, right? Yeah, I had some red licorice really that I hadn't had in a long time. And I won't mention the brand, but I really, really used to love it as a kid. So I broke it out. And, you know, wasn't thinking and it's, you know, licorice, you know, that the satisfying chew when you're stressed, it's awesome, you know, like jump, jump, jump. So um, all of a sudden I start to develop a rash and I have no idea what it is because everything in my life has been the same. Right. And I wasn't this. Yeah. You know, so I'm thinking, wow, what's going on? I don't know. Was this COVID? Sometimes they say there's a rat, you know, and I, you know, I wasn't exactly freaking out. Yeah. But I did contact my doctor because it was it was very unusual. I waited for I don't want to say a couple of days, like maybe two days, but it was just getting worse. And really what it was is that I'm allergic to the nickel alloy in this candy.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) I didn't know this
1: candy had a nickel alloy. That's terrifying, right?
0: What brand is that? Maybe it is a public service to... (laughs) <laughs> i was
1: enjoying twizzlers a little too much so maybe oh, nickel yeah yeah so maybe if you were reasonable and you don't decide i'm gonna chomp on these through the whole movie you know you'll probably be okay me not so much
0: and a nickel you know, so
1: allegedly allegedly it was it was the candy he gave me some salve it was helpful and i stopped consuming the candy and i'm okay <laughs> But you know, that's a you don't know, want to talk about a description of a first world problem with sheltering. Yeah, the night, totally. That's, it, right? yeah, that's <laughs> my it. snacks
0: are good. My, no,
1: my snacks digital is...
0: entertainment yeah. options are pretty extensive. Yeah. Just while we're recording, I i m I'm calling the second wave at the end of June, beginning of July. And uh, I think that the quarantine's gonna fall apart very quickly. Because people mistook we're past the hump as it's absolutely low. The disease is still raging, right? But I, be- I bet you, hospital admissions will be flat because this disease has an incubation period, and people are going to interpret that, misinterpret that as the virus being contained, and they're going to, uh, trans- they're going to transmit. And I bet you, in three, four weeks, once everybody's nice and courageous to break uh, social distancing. We're gonna have a big outbreak. That's my guess. So now it's on tape.
1: Yeah, I, so I agree with you, but I would argue that I, I don't know. It, it's an outbreak. Well, maybe this summer will. We'll... Yeah, so I think there's gonna be a spike in the summer till until you know, and we're all gonna be punished. And then, I, and I think that there's gonna be with the cold and flu season. I, I would argue just you know with um, probably mid fall we're gonna. I would say after September we're gonna have another outbreak. Yeah, another outbreak. I hope not.
0: Well, hopefully they'll be a little more proactive than they were the first round.
1: Yeah, that's why I'm encouraging everybody to please think about what you you know what you need to do yeah. you know to help your family.
0: Yeah, man. I had 195s when this thing broke out. I was able to give some to the uh, local hospital. I had a ton.
1: Oh, that's terrific. When yeah, did you man. order those?
0: I always had them because I remembered SARS oh, when yeah. SARS went to Toronto and you couldn't get N95s. So I kept about 40 just for whatever, for contagion, whatever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, yeah, I had ma- I had the surgical masks and gloves and all that stuff. I had alcohol.
1: Secret prepper.
0: I guess yeah. that makes me a prepper, too. There yeah, you go.
1: I, I only had two.
0: <laughs> oh, my God.
1: No, 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 no. But these were ones each, each mask has um, up to a 200-hour shelf life. I mean, I don't mean shelf life, but 200 hours of use. Yeah, use life. So I was definitely fine. And I also have equipment on hand. Um, Now that we've purchased in the event, we want to make masks for other people and, you know, things like that. Mm. So I'm able to do that with filters and stuff like that. But um, I just want to put this out as kind of a public service message. The message that I would like to to put out to the audience is to please think about how you might prepare for uh, a second wave. Um, in terms of thinking about the fall, thinking about items that you might like to have in mind, like are you might like to have on hand. For example, some of the really good um, N95 companies, uh, mass companies are already um, taking orders for delivery for the fall. Oh, um, really? So it's order now so that you will have it then. So I'm saying don't please don't think this is a one off. I hope that it is, but I would rather encourage everyone to be better prepared.
0: This is the QC Pod, a podcast about the people, ideas, and projects here at Queen's College. A special thank you to Anna Bounds from Sociology. Her book is Bracing for the Apocalypse, an Ethnographic Study of New York's Prepper Subculture with Rutledge. The QC Pod is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. Our theme music is Lake Monsters by They Can't Be Giants. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.